Lost World Minutes, the Midwell Minute Podcast, we're doing 997 sequel Jurassic Park, one minute time. I'm Brad. And here we are back at the end of the week to discuss Minute 116 of the Lost World. We're, uh, we're nearly at the end of this journey. We've got pretty much after this minute, there's uh, one full minute next week of um, dinosaurs roaming sauna and the Pteranodon coming in. That's where the film ends. It's not whole minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it just cuts as the as the pteranodon squeals or I squeaks. Yeah, so it's good. <laughs> it's all in one one minute, so we're probably we'll do that record and we'll probably have a um just a episode, we'll get Jay back on, just have a um look back over the film as a bit of a reflection and uh <laughs> and then see what we do post that. I'd I'd like to have a bit of a discussion about the novel, whether or not we'll both have time to reread it or not in that time, but even if we just go off what we remember, some of the things we probably would have liked to see in the film, and just a bit of a discussion about that. And we might get a couple other episodes released as well, but uh, we've still got uh, a couple of minutes left, so um, before we get into 116, I just wanted to bring up, uh, last minute I was talking about how uh, some of the toy shops here, or shops in general, have uh, now at Fallen Kingdoms sort of said and gone movie-wise, they're uh, clearing out their... Uh, Fallen Kingdom lines, which is upsetting to see, but uh, my local groceries grocery store, I was there yesterday, and they had the uh, Matchbox sets there for a dollar each. Oh, that's cool. So, um, I got about I got about four G-Wagons, about five <laughs> Textron <laughs> trackers. <laughs> so, I've built quite an armada of uh, vehicles. Unfortunately, it's just that Wave 1, which uh, had the G-Wagon and that in it, so it's a shame, but... Um, I'm sure some of the other stores will start clearing out some of their Matchbox stuff as well. But yeah, and I've done a couple of purchases, eBay purchases for some uh, memorabilia as well, which I'll uh, report back on when that gets here in the next week or so. Alright, sounds fun. I'm excited to talk about. But if there's anything else, David, you want to discuss before we get into 116? Yeah, I think we're good. As we entered minute 115 of the Lost World, the cargo doors had fudded closed with a boom, and we'd just cut to a TV as the venture steamed across the ocean. The news reporter starts and tells us the Tyrannosaur, with presumably the baby, is alongside it and in the hull of the ship. At the 12 second mark we cut out to a wide shot that we're inside either Sarah or Ian's apartment and they're watching the newscast on TV. At the 15 second mark, as the news broadcaster continues, Kelly looks across at Ian and Malcolm, who have both fallen asleep, and she smiles. 33 second mark on the TV the news reporter's talking about safety and how the SS Ventures is being followed close behind by a lot of naval ships they're not wanting a repeat of the San Diego incident the 41 second mark Kelly puts the bowl of popcorn back down on the table as Bernard on the TV announces they're about to play a tape of an interview with John Hammond and as the minute ends we get the beginning of John Hammond's amazing speech um, as we open, we get uh, on this second second last minute of the movie, we get uh, the news reporter. You got the helicopter sort of looking down at the ship as we see in the end of the last minute, and uh, it goes down. It's a real first rate shot of the deck of this ship, and the cargo hold, for the moment anyway, contains the animal itself, presumably with the infant alongside. <laughs> I just love how here they not they don't have all the facts. They're like assuming the infant's in there. <laughs> I love the little. Well, 
we think it's going to be in there for the whole trip back, but we don't know yet. There's a possibility <laughs> something might escape. <laughs> and it's on CNN, no less, with Bernard Shaw. I was going to ask about that. I haven't got it in my notes, but is that a that's a thing? Is, CNN, is yeah, actual... that's the main news station of um, America, really. It's known for overdoing stories because they'll talk about one issue for like three days. And you're like, <laughs> Come on, guys, we, there's other things happening. Let's go, let's wrap it up and talk about other things other than this one thing. <laughs> But yes, they are, a, they are a real news station. Well, I was, I was referring more to Bernard. Is, oh, is Bernard, actual... yes, yes, he's a real CNN journalist. Okay, yep. Yeah, well, that's something we brought up in the the uh, the small mini Fallen Kingdom review about how the whole news broadcast stuff that happened at the start of the film was all BBC and not CNN. Mm. But again, you, I suppose, I wonder if that had anything to do with the movie being released early in the UK or England. Not sure. I don't know. Mm. Hey, might be because I know that a lot of the um, movie itself was shot overseas at Pinewood Studios. Yeah, yeah. A lot of most of it was not shot inside the United States at all. Hmm. Yep. That's all right, and I love it too. Like they're just assuming too that the baby's alongside the male being a helicopter shot we don't have any sound here so you can't hear the mm-hmm. male roaring because he's woken up and we sort of speculated what the infant was up to last minute um it seems like the news crew's doing the same thing they don't really know what's going on either but um and we also get here too in this opening part the gag of uh spielberg sitting <laughs> eating the popcorn reflecting yeah. on the tv which I, I looked it's hard on the ipad to see but I seen sort of a silhouette or a shape. It wasn't. It's not as clear as it's sort of led to believe. No, it's not clear at all. I mean, you basically have the have the like um, hint of a third person on the couch, and then when it pans onto the couch, there's no third person sitting in between. Uh, I'm sorry, fourth person on the couch. There's no fourth person sitting there in between Ian, Sarah, and Kelly. Yeah, I think the the more recognisable fact or thing you can notice is there's you can see someone there eating popcorn, yeah. but it's not it's clearly not Kelly. So yeah. I always knew someone was there, but it wasn't until the internet that um, <laughs> I learnt it was actual Stephen himself. I'm like, oh okay, well that's that's good if you got that's a bit of foreshadowing for Blu-ray or 4K. <laughs> mm-hmm. They done no, back then because there's no way you can see it on a VHS. There's no way. Oh no. No, one thing that I wanted did want to talk about last minute that we um, didn't end up talking about was um, we uh, when Bernard Shaw says this is the great first elect or sorry first shot of the deck of the ship, you notice that the deck of the ship has been completely cleaned off the um, the um, strobe lights that had been there earlier the um, the ruined Rex cage is no longer there and any, all the equipment and engine stuff that was there is no longer there. It's basically the ship has been given a clear clear to just sail straight back to Sora and come back. It is not doing anything for InGen right now. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of one of those things you don't really pick up the first time watching it, the fact that that, mm-hmm. yeah, that ruined cage and that's gone. It's sort of a little bit of a, oh, 
it would be interesting too, going back to the shooting script, where there's body parts well, and blood. If you look all at the, the uh, last well. shot we get of the deck at night, you do see some pieces of what look like maybe bodies kind of laid off to one side of the deck. <laughs> well. <laughs> Gruesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of, we get a pull back here and we get the shot change where the uh, camera's back and we get a look at this apartment. Mm-hmm. This seems very small. You've got the TV, you got a double bed on the other side of the TV and then a bit of a desk area behind where mm-hmm. um, everyone's sitting. I, I can't recall... This This is completely made up here. There's nothing in the script, the shooting script about it, which is why we didn't really talk about it last minute. Um, the only thing that really happens there is Sarah taking aim and firing. But I'm, I'm thinking I heard somewhere that it's Sarah's apartment and not Ian's, but... I have heard that too, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously a double bet if they're seeing each other. Well, like they're, they're still at the stage of seeing each other. I don't think they're at the stage of actually moved in together. I'm um, not, I, I don't know. I mean, because they can't, kind of seem to bicker like a couple... Yeah. In a way that makes you feel like they've known each other for a while now. Yeah. You know? It makes you feel like they're comfortable in another. Maybe not moved in with each other, but they're staying at each other's places for extended periods of time. Yeah. Yep. Because I'm just sort of thinking back to that trailer scene where she's sitting there and roasting him for not turning up to the parents' dinner when he said he's going to. And sort of mm-hmm. that sort of stuff Well, if you're not seeing someone every day, it's like, hey, this Friday, let's go and see your mothers and that's then just not turning up uh i mean that may have been something that happened a while ago that she's still miffed about you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and that's that's yeah that's one thing about females if something happened they, they won't forget straight away mm-hmm. they'll keep on rubbing it in <laughs> until we uh, acknowledge that we're wrong mm-hmm. now the thing is that not even blu-ray you cannot see any of the titles of any of the books here behind the couch yeah. So there's really no way to kind of um, there's really no way to figure out whether those are mathematical books or paleontological books, which would be, of course, the dead giveaway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's nothing. Well, there's nothing to no. sort of mm. lean one way or the other. So I wonder if this is um, just one of the bedrooms in that girls' school where Hammond's, ma- uh, Hammond's mansion was filmed that they've just dirtied up a bit. I don't know. I mean, this. Is- I don't know. It's a tiny tiny area. They could have just built the set or had something. They could have. I mean, it's it's also something that it's like two walls. We get to see two walls here. So it's something they easily could have built on one of the the set studios back on Studio 12 or something like that, you know? Yeah. Just uh, shine some uh, sunlight dilated spotlights in through the window. Yeah, I suppose just like that um, tumbling down the hill scene, just another one of these little sets that you just know nothing about. True. No, um, but I will admit, this is kind of how I imagined uh, Richard Levine's uh, flat would have looked like in the novel, except, of course, I always picture a balcony on his for some reason. I don't know why. Mm. And I also always pictured... Well, of course, that's because they describe it more in old engine computer parts lying around. But yeah, this is a lot how you I kind of imagine his novel was described. 
just books and stuff lying everywhere. Well, he's no, he was, he was a clean freak, wasn't he? Wasn't there stuff? Because when they enter, when Malcolm enters his apartment, and he said he scoffs at something about it looking like a museum. Oh, that's right. You're right. Because he um, yeah. yeah, all his clothes are in the wardrobe, neatly folded and mm-hmm. you're separated. Right. And... Again, that's the movie's influence uh, perverting my image of the novel. <laughs> like in like the novel. I always imagined this coniferous forest. I always imagined Sauron's coniferous forest just because of this movie. Mm. You know, it's described as classic jungle, but I can't imagine that. Yeah, yeah, that the whole visual of redwood sauna and that is completely film and not not novel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so um, we get the the news sort of report continues. Now, by our calculations, they should be nearing the halfway point of the trip. Um, and he goes on to Jim can you hear me they sort of he's asking for the reporter on the site or he's in the helicopter or what have you to um, report but halfway nearing the halfway point um, obviously as you said before the sun's coming in through the the window do you reckon this is morning or afternoon? I don't know I mean that's a good question because I don't know I always imagined it personally as morning but it could be afternoon, just because. I mean, if they're halfway there, that would make more sense. Hmm. Well, it, it gets a bit into that as we get going on here too, because um, he says, um, "Well, we get a quick cut here of Kelly looking across and Sarah and Ian are falling asleep." But uh, the voiceovers, yes, yes I, yeah, <laughs> the um, the voiceovers, yes, I can, Bernard. We are in fact halfway to the island. It is 206 nautical miles from our present location. Um, and the ship's moving at about 20 knots, which will put it in at about 11.30am Eastern Time. So if it's afternoon, then it's going to be the following morning. Yeah, I mean, we do get a good shot of the plates here. Let me uh, let me see for a second here what they're eating, because that would be a good giveaway. What yeah. It might be just the way the, way the video is shot. Peas. Maybe uh, an apple or something like that. I, I'm going to call it the afternoon because I see chicken legs. Yeah. I, I say this is like either after lunch or early dinner. Yeah, because I think when you get a sh- like the shot of the ship and then the fleet, how you can see the sun's low. Mm-hmm. Normally, I know here it might be different over there. Normally in the morning, like sunrise in the morning, um, the air seems a lot more crisper. Whereas when you start true. getting towards the afternoon, you start to get that reddish, like, dirtier tinge. Um, well, that is lo- true. That's also something they, they teach us about in photography classes, is that morning light is typically has a softer, more blue, more um, cooler light because yeah. the, during the day, the dust rises and gives the sun a darker hue and creates a warmer atmosphere. Yep. Yep. So I'd, I'd assume... To mean it left the day prior. If they're exactly halfway to the island, we know that the whole San Diego thing ended at the very late morning, sort mm-hmm. of six or six a.m. or something. It doesn't it doesn't help the uh, the time it takes to get to and from the island, or or previous how long it took the venture to get back, whether it was overnight. It makes more sense if this was eight thirty or nine o'clock, and it's going to get in there at um, eleven thirty because that would be halfway roughly, yeah. from when they set sail. But as you said, like, the ship's been cleaned off. That's not all happening 
in a few minutes before they set sail, the ship's got to be checked for seaworthiness yeah. and. Yeah. But yeah, and then we uh, we get the zoom out, and the voiceover continues. One of the navy's primary concerns throughout all this has been safety. Good on them. <laughs> and if you can take a look um, at the ever-growing convoy around the ship, they're taking no chances of a repeat of the San Diego incident. Get some more guns around them. <laughs> <'cause>, uh, <laughs> no, actually, the person that uh, Jim Seven that is um, that Bernard Shaw is talking to is actually an SS Venture crewman. Okay. It says uh, underneath his name, uh, that, and then it goes away. Right as the camera pans upwards. Yeah, interesting that they got someone on there to talk. Because you'd think that'd be a um, like a media consultant or something from InGen, or especially with what they're trying to hide, <laughs> what just happened, and be as um, vague about. Well, there's there's no hiding what just happened. Yeah. Their CEO is dead. Their uh, their asset has just caused catastrophic damage to downtown San Diego. Yeah. That's there's no hiding this. There's no coming back. Yeah. They went chapter eleven and Maserati bought them dirt cheap. I'm sure. Yeah, well that's that's one interesting thing we'll get to in a minute with the shooting script and where it ends. But yeah, we get um the uh, Bernard continues and he goes, okay, we're going to take a moment here to run a tape, <laughs> a tape <laughs> of our <laughs> interview <laughs> earlier with um tape. <laughs> yeah, from early in the day with John Hammond. Uh, he's the former head of Engine Bioengineering, the man who's come forward to spearhead this movement, not only to return these animals to their island, but to leave the island itself intact. Um, I, I'm guessing because it's so close to the incident, but you've got to wonder why still former head... Okay, when he was kicked off the board, he was mm-hmm. removed completely from the board and haven't had a chance to... To do anything, but you'd think uh, there must be a vice president or something that automatically filled that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he is kind of the most important person to talk to. He was the person who, with Lockwood's help, brought these animals back to life, who established the Jurassic Park theme park, who established Engine, and he's kind of like, he's kind of like. Sorry, I got a moth <laughs> flying around me. I thought we're getting sound effects. <laughs> He's the person who essentially is probably the most important person to talk to. He's the one who, like Bernard Shaw said, is talking to, I mean, is trying to push for Isla Sona to be a preserve. Just thinking as a journalist myself, I would want to, he, I would want to talk to Steve Jobs, the person who founded the company, who knows the company, than just some vice president who got placed in that position because uh, the founder got booted off the board, you know? Is that before or after the iPhone 11 starts shooting people with lasers? <laughs> 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 and I just I just wonder because again, this whole time he says um, an interview we had from earlier on in the day, which mm-hmm. if this is morning, that's earlier in the morning, but the fact that he got John, he's sort of it's almost like he's called the the news the news station while the Tyrannosaurus running around. And go, oh, I I know a lot what's going on here, or because he's in his suit, he's all dressed up mm-hmm. and ready to talk to someone to um to push forward his agenda here to save the save the animals in the island. Which, as we le- learned from earlier in the film, that's what he's been doing or something along mm-hmm. that with his ecology lectures. Um, well, we know from 
even the first movie, John Hammond is a showman. That's a key component of his character that was brought over from the novel. He's a great kind of person to kind of bring this, bring the spectacle and the little sparkles that come with the dirty work of actually building a theme park. He's the guy that he's more almost more of a marketer as much as he is the founder. You know, yeah. he's the one who had to go and get the market and marketed the idea to funders so that they would give him the money to do with this venture. So in a way, he is almost the best spokesman you could have. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And I'm really glad this is the way he saw it. We'd last see him in the franchise as well. Mm-hmm. Um, where the, the pre-San Diego script had his funeral, which <laughs> was a downer to sort of end on. Yeah, it was, honestly. I can see so, why they would have removed that. Even if they didn't, um, fin- even if they finished out with that script, I feel like that would have been something that would have been cut just because it was depressing. I mean, you don't want to end, you don't want to have an ap- happy ending marred with the one of a, a, fa- a fan favorite character's funeral. You yeah. know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something I do like here, though, is that when they introduce him, is Dr. John Hammond. He's been given an honorary doctorate at some point, and I wonder what it was in. Because, I mean, you could, an honorary doctorate is usually given when you've done some kind of great feat of science, such as bringing dinosaurs back to life. But that, <coughs> for the world's only known about dinosaurs coming back to life since the previous night. Yeah. So, it's like, I mean, was he given an honorary doctorate literally overnight? No. Yeah, I wonder. I'm just just thinking back in the beginning of it all, because the whole, really, the 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 model, the brainchild of this was Wu, or the yeah, one that yeah. was able to do all this was Wu, and it's sort of, again, it might be blurring novel and film, but the whole reason he partnered with Wu because he was a eager young, eager young man out of college that sort of had this brilliant mind and the ability to sort of do this. Mm-hmm. But Hammond would have had to have sort of done the R&D in that beforehand, and if you want to bring Lockwood into that as well, you can. But its I don't think it's ever really specified that he had any type of genetics experience before. We only really get the flea circus as his backstory. Well, like I said, he's a showman. He's there to kind of present the idea. In the, no- in the novel, uh, Lockwood's place was kind of... Um, it was kind of taken in by a character named Norman Atherton, and he was the brainchild who started the genetic kind of thing with the miniature elephants at the um, at the funding hearings. And then he was replaced by Wu, because Wu had, was younger, could fulfill the dream longer, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just wonder, is John Hammond... A big con, like the franchise's biggest conman, conman. Because the I mean, whole it started back with the flea circus. He's fleecing people for money to see this flea circus, and now it's always this talk of spared no expense and grandeur mm-hmm. and all that. When well, he's not, he's not because he didn't pay Nedry enough or had Nedry working overtime, whichever um, can you want to run now for why Nedry's disgruntled. Um, and sort of here too, he's sort of, oh yes, let's now had that change of heart, let's save the animals and that. But 
as we get later on, well, this is only going to be a short-lived change of heart because he's going to whisper something into Maserani's ear and that's going to start it all off again. <laughs> I suppose that's just the issue of continuing films that weren't um, made to be continued. But You almost got to... I mean, you could almost say yes. If you didn't love the characters so much, you would say, this guy's a con man. He, he just swindles people for the money uh, and then never delivers. That's pretty much exactly what he did with Jurassic Park. Took a bunch of people's money and then completely abandoned the project at the first pickup. Yeah. And then we, we, he paid Grant and Ellie to go. I'm sure Malcolm got a yeah. payout to go pretty much. Oh, no. He, he, he was, uh, Ludlow says at the, beginning, at the beginning of The Lost World, he was given a considerable uh, sum of money for his injuries and... Like we, I think we even mentioned that or Ian Malcolm said there was a payoff. He basically said there was a payoff and an insult. Yeah, but that's that's once the incident happened. I'm talking like the cons- consulting fee to go. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Although at the time Malcolm being as cocky as he was in that first film, he might have just volunteered to go there just to be there when it, or just to rub it in their nose that this isn't going to mm-hmm. work, and because he does it throughout the whole film. So. Well, in the um. In the novel, uh, Grant is already attached somehow, sorry, not somehow, but somewhat attached um, to the Jurassic Park project as a cons- on a consulting level. He was being getting phone calls constantly from Gennaro. Um, yeah, that's the, one the thing I really miss. Baby sauropods, stuff like that. Yeah. And he was being paid by Hammond as a consultant. In the in the books, or I mean, in the movies, though, he's not. He has no connection to InGen. He's basically brought on as a consultant. I'm not as a consultant, but as a uh, to be a critic, just uh, because he's top of his field as as is Ellie in Paleo Botany. Mm-hmm. And in the end, um, there was what they're supposed to do is take a tour of the park. Uh, give them some little critiques, what they should, what they could do better, what they, what they're do, doing well on, and then pen up a testimonial for the um, investors so that they'd be happy, they feel like they're going to get a good investment, and then Hammond would pay them for that, pay them for that testimonial through additional funding. Yeah, and that's that's sort of one thing to think about if you're getting. And Hammond probably thinks if I'm going to sit here and guarantee him funding for the next three years, and mm-hmm. they're going to they're going to be on my side and be approving of the park and keep the insurance guys off his back. The fact that the first, well, as soon as Grant gets there and sees what they're doing, and then we have that dinner scene, he's like, "No, this is not right." <laughs> this completely turns around, backfires on him. But I know. I mean, he's he's brought on as a uh, what was it? An an. an he was supposed to endorse the park, as he says at the end of the movie, but clearly, Dr. Hammond, I do not endorse your park. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that whole, that whole Grant's backstory of InGen, it's, it's something I love from the novel that's not addressed completely in the, in the film. I don't... It sort of implies when, they're, when mm-hmm. they see him in there that he's already been spending or giving them funding or something. Yeah, because it's, it's like the whole oh, it's, oh, Mr. Hammond. Oh, sorry, let me get you a drink or let me, mm-hmm. let me get that for you and that after just calling him a jerk. So he's familiar with Hammond, but I don't think he's on like a face-to-face basis with him. I think he only knows him as a 
as a dinosaur tycoon billionaire who funds his research. Yeah, I don't think they've ever met face to face, obviously. No. Yeah. But <laughs> tangent aside, getting back to the the tagline of Doctor, it's just yeah. I wonder. I wonder if that's from previous, and he just never went by Doctor Hammond, or because I'm just trying. I don't think I've ever heard him addressed as Doctor Hammond, not even no, in Trespass or this, anything like that. This is the only time in any Jurassic Park media John Hammond is ever referred to as Doctor John Hammond. Mm. Yeah, no, that is an interesting one. And speaking of first time ever, ever being called something by John Hammond, people are in uproar that it's not John Parker Hammond. People forget that it was only Trespasser. He's never, he's, um, no, wait, oh, no, wait, what was it, John Alfred? Uh, I forget, I forget. John Parker Hammond was in Trespasser and they mm-hmm. made it Alfred in Fallen Kingdom. Yeah, that was... Then there's no he's never given a middle name in the movies or any of the tie in material. So that was a clean slate. There was there's nothing there that they're overriding because Trespasser was never canon with the films in the first place. And that's yeah, as much as I'm sort of oh really, well we've been told it was Parker, now you're gonna make it something else. Well, yeah, it's not canon. Otherwise, yeah, there'd be a damn on sauna and <laughs> we mm-hmm. won't get into the rest of the stuff that's different there, but I think <laughs> more so because it's probably the most character development possibly that we've got out of the entire franchise of just those memoirs and him talking mm-hmm. even though yes it's not most of it's not canon but sort of the way it follows it's it, it could easily be added to canon um you only need to change a couple of things here and there especially yeah. when he's talking about the summit and <laughs> stuff we've never seen in the films but mm-hmm. um... as much as i despise derek davis derek i'm sorry derek davis himself I gotta admit, his Jurassic Time memoirs are fantastic. Mm. They're probably one of the best series you could ever listen to on anything Jurassic Park related. Yeah, and we've brought it up before, and it's definitely worth getting on YouTube and going to check them out. But just just the fact that Sir Richard Obra returned to voice to voice <laughs> that, and um, apparently there's a lot of stuff that didn't end up in that memoirs. A lot of stuff that was recorded and didn't end up in there, so. Well, I think Derek Davis actually put that back in when he did his Jurassic Time memoirs. The Jurassic oh. Time memoirs is not the original name of it. It's originally it's called Hammond's Memoirs. But Derek Davis uh, kind of put everything together and created the Jurassic Time memoirs. Or yeah. not, not Jurassic Time memoirs, but he created Jurassic Time. Yeah, I'm which, thinking uh, of the actual Hammond's game memoirs. itself. Yeah. yeah. A lot of stuff was cut for the game. But... Mm-hmm. Which, considering it's it, it, the issues are having production, I can see why that happened. But um, true. But um, yeah, as the minute ends, we got Hammond on screen here, and he starts his um his little speech here, which we've had at the end of the podcast since day one. Mm-hmm. It's a- absolutely imperative that we'll find out what the rest of that is next minute next week. We'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah. talk about what I think is personally the greatest monologue ever given in this franchise aside from the um what was it the um where Hammond say, says an aim not devoid of merit oh I was going to bring up Roland you reckon this is better than Roland's intro yeah I do I, I suppose mean, just because for the, the franchise. emotional impact it gives is I think much better you know yeah yeah Roland's is a great character introduction Mm-hmm. Whereas this is a great sort of going out on the franchise 
for Hammond. Um, it's a great moment, period. Yeah. And uh, Richard Attenborough, who's such a great, who was such a legendary actor, delivers it so perfectly. Mm. Yep. All right. Anything else? Oh, anything else? And that you uh, want to get to before we get into the shooting script briefly? No, I think I think we covered that pretty well. All right. Um, this is it for the shooting script. Um, we don't get any of the uh, stuff in in slash Sarah's bedroom, but um, we get the dart being shot at the Rex, and um, as it roars, we cut to open sea. Ian and Sarah are holding hands, standing at the ship's railing. As the camera pulls back, we see that they're on the deck of uh, the ocean barge, which in the script has been described as an ocean barge and not what the uh, venture actually was in the film. But um, on the deck beside him is a huge tranquilized body of the Maltranosaur. It, it trank and fell on the deck. It wasn't in the cargo hold at all. Um, it's kind of worse than <laughs> having it loose running around in the... Uh cargo hold because that what do you do when it wakes up yeah at least i suppose at least you can monitor it like they do say they have a um a tarp over it with some straps just strapping it down but yeah and i suppose oh, shit, by... I, just saw, uh, I just saw his toe twist slowed <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of darts in there <laughs> oh how many times are they giving it a, trying to give it an antidote because it's got five darts because five guys <laughs> watching it just oh it's flinched <laughs> But um, also beside it on the decks, equally trans- uh, tranquilizes the baby. It's on the deck next to the adult as well. Mm-hmm. So um, and you can sort of see it's a callback to um earlier scenes where you can see the the, the tarp over it and you see it slowly rise and fall as the animal breathes. But um, yeah, Ian tells Sarah to brace herself, and as the camera pulls back further, we reveal several ships following alongside. Um, and Ian continues, things are about to get weird. And then um, um, he sort of continues, the animals are contained, but the word is out as the film fades out. It's sort of yeah. a bit of an ominous ending to say, well, it's almost like the Fallen Kingdom ending. It's like, yes, we've got the Rex on board and heading back to Sauna, but word's out. People now know about the dinosaurs. They're going to know about the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost welcome to Jurassic World. <laughs> it is kind of. I, I really do think it is. It's... Um... Very sequel bait. <laughs> well, yeah. How does that phrase, you know? Yep. Yeah. It does raise some questions about Ian and Sarah being on the boat and returning to Sauna with the animals, whether they wanted to make sure it uh, got back there and wasn't whisked off somewhere else. Or, as I said, like the, the ships, it's just described as several ships following alongside. They're not called Navy or anything else, so... I could see if they were going to... If this was in the film this would pretty much be how the sequel would open up straight away, where you'd have either mm-hmm. um, an incident on the ship where it escaped or someone coming on to steal it or something. It'd be one of those films where, yes, the... the uh, well, I can't believe how much we keep bringing this up. Like The Incredibles, how it sort of... 14 years ago it ended, and now, 14 years later, it sort of cuts, comes straight back in from where that <laughs> film ended. <laughs> It'd be a way to get Ian and Sarah back into it, have your returning stars and and that as well. But we've um we've commented all the way through this film about how stuff from the novels and the scripts and that seem to be making their way back into um, future films in the franchise. So 
I've no doubt there's something here that someone kept in the back of their mind. There's a way no. to go out. <clears throat> well, well, something we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast was how um, when this movie, or yeah, when this movie was meant to open, we were supposed to get these Japanese fishing uh, ships hauling up a dead parasaur, and that was supposed to harken back to the um, aberrant forms. Mm. Now that Nublar is destroyed, I wonder if we'll get a opening scene somewhat like that, because we did get news that originally um, Bayona was going to have one of the one of the possible opening scenes was the Mosasaur attacking a Japanese whaling ship. Mm. So it'd be interesting if they brought if they this Japanese whaling ship is somehow like one of the tides brought carried out away one of the charred remains of one of the dinosaurs. They haul it up. I'm like, what the heck is this? The Mosasaur comes along and and smashes it. Nearly brings the uh, uh, snatches the the hunk of charred cooked dinosaur and nearly drags the whaling ship down with it. Yeah. You know. I think at this point, if ever they're going to do that, now's when they can because you've just had the volcano go. Mm-hmm. You've seen all those animals jump into the water. Okay, some might not be burnt. I wonder if it's the last we've seen of that brachiosaur on that dock. <laughs> nah, I, I think <laughs> I think we have to keep it, um, that being the last thing we see, just because I mean, it's such a gut punch scene. So much of the fandom has been emotional over it. You know how how pissed people would be if they made that like. Oh, the, the you know that scene that made millions of fans cry. Oh well, he's alive. <laughs> I mean, I think, oh no no, I think half the fandom would cheer, half the fandom would be like, oh, you know. Oh no, but I'm just it, it would be that that burnt corpse, that burnt carcass, that either a big whaling ship or a whaling ship, a fishing ship, because something like that being towed in the water would be enough to hey, what's in the nets? The nets are stuck or something else um but it could be it could be anything but having especially whoa, 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 whoa. slow down now satan <laughs> my, yeah my, my comment was the... off one of my favorite dinosaurs from the original movie now you're gonna have it haul up its dead corpse yeah, <laughs> that, yeah that's that's what i was getting to like just the fact just even i don't know how guru they could be like even that original practical of the um parasol office had some chunks missing but it wasn't overly gory and i'm sure it would have been filmed at night as well if in a storm or rain or something but um if they're going to go with the mosasaur causing issues out in the ocean possibly attacking a boat they could they could surely have um the reason that boat stopped was because a carcass has been pulled from the water it's sort of one of those things we sort of joked about the fact that only 11 species and probably 20 animals were sold off um, at that auction, well, you're going to have a lot of these dead animals floating around. Yes, they're dead, but you've still got the body that you could harvest DNA from in that. Like, the auction's not the only source of getting the research in these animals. But uh, That is a good point. You're right. But it could be... There could be a, a cordon. There could be... We've seen in Jurassic Park 3, the ships might be back to sort of clean up the mess or something. So that's not happening, but... 
Yeah. Okay, just another one of those little things. It's not really... Not really explained. We're probably looking a bit too far into it for a film that yeah, hasn't even started probably. production yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think it's funny how, like, a lot of fans, as soon as they saw Jurassic World end, they're like, damn Mosasaurus, there's no way it's going to be in the movie, in the next movie. It's going to be dead in days. And then they open up the movie and the guy even says, anything in here would be dead by now. But, <laughs> you know? But again, that would be great and suspenseful if we hadn't seen it in the bloody trailer. <laughs> that is true. Like, he could have cross, come across those bones, and yes, you see the skull in Dominus Rex, but it could have easily been the Mosasaur, and they're just there trying to get some DNA from it, because, hey, mm-hmm. it's an aquatic animal, and it was a fluke when they got the DNA to start with <laughs> from Amber, or however, however they're going to try and... I don't even think they have tried to retcon how that actually happened. I think that's just ambiguous, and that's probably where it should stay. Of what? The... Of how they got the Mosasaur DNA. Ah, so... I mean, they do mention that it um, prefers to eat closer to the surface. So, I mean, who's to say that it wasn't feeding on a, like a dead animal that floated mm. out to sea, and a mosquito came by, bit it, and then flew off, and then landed in a sap of a tree? Yeah. Bingo. Dino DNA. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to do an accent for that. <laughs> I'll just play down my head. Yep, perfect. Uh, all right, anything else on 116 you want to get to before we get out of here for the day? No, I think we're good. All right. All right, guys. Let's get the hell out of here. Contact details are on the website, thelostworldminute.com. Email feedback to the Lost World Minute at gmail.com, Facebook, The Lost World Minute, Twitter at The Lost World Minute, and Instagram, The Lost World Minute. Easy to remember. Yeah, yeah, very easy to remember. Right. <laughs> uh, David, thank you for joining me for this recording. And uh, we'll be back. I've been Brad. I'm Dave. And uh, we'll talk to you all later. Goodbye. Talk to you later. Bye. It is absolutely imperative that we work with the Costa Rican Department of Biological Preserves to establish a set of rules for the preservation and isolation of that island. These creatures require our absence to survive, not our help. And if we could only step aside and trust in nature, life will find a way.